Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Patar, I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. And on our podcasts, we've focused a lot up to now on open source intelligence and how to research particular topics and finding information, working out what to do with that information. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how to research a specific country, and in this case, one that is often harder to find out about. And I'm delighted to welcome a real expert on Saudi Arabia in particular, but the Middle East more generally, um, David Rundell, who for 30 years was a U.S. diplomat working in the region and um, spent 15 years of that working in Saudi Arabia, which is quite unusual for a diplomat. So, David, welcome to the podcast. It'd be great to get more of a background from you on some of your experience and how you've got to where you are now. And, and we can talk a little bit about the book that you've just published as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. It's an Sorry. interesting question that you're asking tonight or today about uh, how do you s- learn about an opaque, rather closed and very different society like Saudi Arabia. Uh, I had a whole series of unique opportunities to do that, which at the time when I did it were um, were rare and difficult to obtain. I think it's easier to obtain those opportunities today and I'll explain a little bit about that. Um, I learned Arabic at Oxford. I did a BA and then an MPhil at Oxford in the Middle East Studies. Then I joined the Foreign Service, and my first position really was in the uh, in the political section at a time when um, the uh, Shah of Iran had just fallen. And so one of the jobs that I was asked to do was to travel around the countryside and uh, try and find out what was going on in the countryside. The reason being that people expected there was going to be another revolution in Saudi Arabia that was going to be similar to the one in Iran and that they felt that in Iran they had not known what was happening in the countryside. So I had um, a car, a Jeep, uh, and I was spent two weeks out of every month for two years traveling the byways and highways of Saudi Arabia, many of which were dirt roads in those days. There was no paved road between Jeddah and Riyadh at that time. And uh, after doing that for two years, I had a pretty extensive understanding of of rural Saudi Arabia. I had a very good, I got improved my Arabic quite a lot as well. Um, And so that really was how I got started. If I can jump in on that point, actually, David, because for me, that's really fascinating. And it was part of your your background that I wanted to ask a little bit more about, because it's such a great contrast to, to now, perhaps. And it shows how far we've come in that, you know, you had to go around the country, driving around, talking to people to really find out what was going on in those days. And it was perhaps before some of the big urban centers were as big as they are now. Um, you know, it, it would be great as we could go through this discussion for you to maybe touch on how things have changed over the years. And, you know, for, for somebody who, who arrives in Saudi Arabia now and wants to find out what's going on, perhaps easier it is than it was in those days. Uh, it's much easier now. It's, it's, it's much easier now. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school and I told people I wanted to study Saudi Arabia, everybody sort of laughed. There were no scholars really who dealt with Saudi Arabia. Everybody wanted to study Egypt or Iraq or Syria, which were considered the serious countries. And Saudi Arabia was kind of a backwater. I really thought that was a mistake. I thought they were living in the past. And I think I was right. That proved that that was the case. The Saudi Arabia has a is now the, by far the biggest economy in the Arab world. Um, the things that but there was. So what I was the point I'm making there was there was very little scholarship. Uh, there were no committees. There were no conferences held on Saudi Arabian studies or Arabian Peninsula studies. That's all changed now. There are entire Conferences. There's one held every year at Cambridge. 
uh, that deals with the Gulf. Uh, and there were professors and academics from all over the world who specialized in this. So that's a huge change. Um, the statistics that are available now are still not great in many instances, but there are statistics. I used to have to do my own statistics. Um, you know, in terms of figuring out the GDP, I had a whole series of little things I used to do. I used to go have what I called this, the uh, Jitter Brick Index. I used to go and count the bricks and in brickyards and when they started building up getting more supply and then they were uh the piles were getting bigger i figured construction was slowing down uh and when the piles were small i figured everybody's buying their bricks and the construction is booming um that's a fascinating indicator (laughs) uh, a better example really was one that we used i created this one with the japanese the japanese were japanese were very good at gathering data uh and they because they have a very close relationship between their government and their big trading houses. So we could figure, we figured everything in Saudi Arabia moves on heavy trucks. There's no, in those days there were no railroads. So uh, we started tracking uh, the import of, uh, of heavy truck tires. And uh, in, unlike Dubai, most of those tires that get imported, they're not getting re-exported. So they're being used in the country. We could follow that. We went to Exxon and we got uh, numbers on lubricants how um how much everything uses lubricant so we could track the, the use of lubricants for gdp and then for inflation we just um used uh car batteries which we figured was something everybody needed and a bottle of uh, johnny walker on the uh black market which was a luxury item but the price changed a lot so we used we had to come up with our own kind of uh matrix uh today you know the world bank and the imf will help help you a lot more than they would in those days or they they they're, they're basically they get their numbers from the Saudi government and the Saudi government has got a lot better numbers now than it than it used to, so that's changed a lot. So I think those are two things which you know make your life a lot easier today. And a third thing is that in those days not many people spoke English. A lot of people, a lot of people, especially in the countryside, did not speak English, and so uh, you needed Arabic if you were going to do much outside of the big cities. And uh, I think all of that has changed. So you have better data, you have a, a wide range of academic literature, and you've got a lot more people that will speak English to you. On that, on that third point, I can't resist asking about that because, um, you know, from my own personal background, having having studied Arabic at university and unfortunately let it lapse, <laughs> as I haven't really been a linguist uh, since then, um, how did you find it turning up in the country? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you'd probably you probably hadn't studied the Gulf dialect before you got there. Well, so did you have to sort of learn the more colloquial language? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I've, I've learned my Arabic. Um, I've learned, you know, all around the world. So I have. It, it's funny. My my choice of words is very odd in the sense that some words I learned in Tunisia and other words I learned in Jordan and other words I learned in Jeddah. So and all those people have different accents and different dialects. Um, no, but you're right. I mean, I had to sort of learn, if you will, the colloquial dialect or the colloquial. And mostly I did learn the colloquial words of the Central Arabian uh, dialect. But I will tell you, the first day I was in Jeddah, first day I went to the first reception I went to and I was very happy. You know, I went up to some Saudi and I started talking to him in Arabic and he looked at me and he said in English, he goes, oh, no, not another American who sounds like a Lebanese. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, great, that's a really a good start, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I, that sort of does show you that you kind of have to learn the, the dialect of where you are. And, and over time, I, I did up to up to a, up to a point. That's fantastic. I mean, in, in terms of that being a, a difference to today or something that, that may have still similarities, because obviously a lot of a lot of our audience and people listening to this, 
will be people who are primarily doing a lot of their research online. And I think in the last few years, we've seen an expansion of the level of um, non-English language content online and Arabic Arabic language content. You know, when you're, you know, or if somebody is researching what's going on in Saudi Arabia, how familiar do they need to be with with Arabic still to really get a handle on what's going on, even if they're not in the country? Well, I think, you know, you can do a lot with English language, uh, but you will miss a certain uh, amount of depth if you are not looking at Arabic sources. When in my day, that was pretty limited to just reading the Arabic newspaper, which wasn't really all that helpful because uh, the Arabic newspaper wasn't any different than the English newspaper because it was all heavily censored. So you didn't get you didn't really get much from spending the hours to read the Arabic newspaper. But that's changed now. And I think, you know, watching Twitter feeds, uh, watching uh, mm. Facebook, watching YouTube, those things will give you a feel for what's happening in the country. And so I think it, it's helpful to follow those things if you can. You can you can get them translated. I mean, there are plenty mm-hmm. of tools that will help you translate very easily. You don't have to go spend three years learning Arabic. Uh, <laughs> you can uh, you can you know, plug some tweets into the translator and it'll help you. So um, but I do think it adds a dimension. And I and I would say something else that um, it is another dimension really to help you understand the. Saudi Arabia. And that is when I was at Oxford, I studied uh, a lot of classical Arabic and I studied um, a lot of classical literature and the Quran. And um, I subsequently took courses at the State Department's uh, Foreign Service Institute, which is their language school. Uh, it's a very, very uh, accomplished institution. Uh, but they are they are interested in training diplomats to read the newspaper and listen to the radio. And that's it. And so their vocabulary is uh very different i mean you don't they don't teach you to read you know pre-islamic poetry or um or the quran and so the fact that i had done that always gave me an edge uh and quite a significant edge over some of my colleagues who had just learned arabic and learned basically just modern standard arabic learned to read the newspaper and had never been immersed in um, Arabic literature. And that was um, something that I only appreciated later on, because when I was at Oxford, I was trying to, I thought I wanted to, that's what I want to do. I want to read the newspaper, you know, and they were saying, no, no, you can learn that later. You need to do the <laughs> literature now. And I think they were right. I mean, I think, you know, the fact mm-hmm. that I had read much of the Quran in Arabic was a big help in a place like Saudi Arabia, not only in conversing with people uh, about it when, and they would be kind of shocked that I knew it, but also in helping me to understand them and understand where they were coming from and how their government and their society functioned. So um, I think that having language skills is is important. I, I don't want to underestimate that and to say that you don't need them today. It's easier. You can do you can do more with there are more people who speak English, but I think it's still helpful. That's so interesting to hear you say that because it, it really chimes, um, you know, in a small way with some of my experience. You know, I've obviously not had the extent of, um, of of your experience in the region, but I remember 20 years ago as a student backpacking in Lebanon and being uh, in the Bekaa Valley and talking to somebody who who was from Saudi Arabia and um, mentioned that, you know, at university, we also, you know, we studied the language, but part of it was also studying the literature and the pre-Islamic poetry, which you mentioned. And they were amazed, amazed and impressed because it's something that is not, okay, not, not everybody in Saudi Arabia is going to be familiar with it, you know, but they'll, they at least know of it. And it's part of the culture. It's interlaced within the culture. I mean, it's like, 
it's like I think if somebody is coming to the English language culture for for the first time, and if you've got a grounding in in some of the older literature, then you'll pick up, or or you know even phrases from from the Bible, etc. You'll pick up a lot of day to day language and phrases which otherwise can be quite opaque and difficult to understand. And yeah, I think it definitely has has the the same uh, the same effect. And I wanted to sort of move on to just talking a little bit about the country itself, you know, for those who aren't familiar with it and what's going on right now or, you know, has been going on for the last few years. And especially given, you know, your book has just been published, uh, Visional Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. And I think that aspect of what's going on right now, the country being at the crossroads is so is so vital and so um, interesting for our audience and those who maybe aren't watching so closely events in Saudi Arabia, but just see occasional things on the news, perhaps, uh, which tend to be focused on, on a lot of the negative things that maybe maybe go on. But it would be interesting to get your take on how things have developed um, since King Salman acceded to the throne. So maybe over the last five years and. And some of the critical issues that you see um, developing over the next the next few years, because one of the things I really liked about the book was how you, you pose some questions at the end of each chapter, which for an analyst or researcher reading it gives them something to think about in terms of the types of indicators and the issues that they should be focused on to help them work out how things are going to be going in the country. So great to get your thoughts on what are the vital issues at the moment? You know, what are the things that that make up that crossroads that you you, you know is mentioned in your the title of your book? Okay, well, Saudi Arabia has changed dramatically in the last five years, socially, economically, and politically. I don't think there's another country in the world uh, in the last five years that has seen as rapid or as significant a change in some of the very basic elements of society. And I will talk about that to the extent that you want. Um, so I'll start with the social changes, which are the most obvious. Uh, and most most obvious amongst those are the changes that relate to gender equality. Everyone knows that uh, women were not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. They are now allowed to drive. Uh, what you may not know about are the dismantling of the so-called guardianship regulations. These were rules that basically uh, a woman had to get permission from her guardian, who was usually her father or her brother or her husband, to do a whole range of things, to open a bank account, to get a passport, to travel outside the country, to put your child in school, to get a cesarean delivery. Uh, all these things required your guardian to sign off, li- literally. Um, most of those, not all of them, but most of those have been abolished. Girls used to not be able to participate in uh, sports. Now they're able to go to sports. They used to not be able to go to sporting events. Uh, they, now they can go to football matches. Many professions used to be closed to women, engineering, geologists, uh, a wide range of things, uh, lawyers. That's, again, not completely, but mostly gone away. And the number of women in the Saudi labor force has increased substantially in the, just in the last five years. Five years ago, the labor force participation rate for women was 20 percent. Now it's 30 percent. Uh, so it increased by 50 percent in five years, which is rather dramatic. On the other hand, if you look at Britain, the labor force participation rate is, for women is about 60 percent. So they're still half of what they are in Britain. So they still have a long ways to go. But I think that's really the story of Saudi Arabia. They have a long ways to go, but they're moving pretty quickly in the right direction. 
Um, the social changes went beyond just gender uh, gender issues. The religious police, which I think, again, are quite known in the West, they're often called the Mutawa. They've basically been taken off the street and their powers have been greatly curtailed. Education has um, been tra- has been changed. There's a lot more um, math and science and less religion than there used to be. Um, the religion that's being taught is a little bit, is quite a bit more moderate than it used to be. Um, give you another good example: English. Now they're starting to introduce English in first grade. These are um, pretty significant changes to the education system. There's also been entertainment. I mean, you, I think many people know that there were no movie theaters in Saudi Arabia. Uh, now there are. So all of those social changes, I mean, the title of the book is Vision or Mirage. Those are not a mirage. Those are real things, and they are really happening. They're also creating some issues in the sense that there are people who think that the change is going too fast and uh, would like it to slow down or um, even go backwards. Is that causing some sort of resentment in society? It is. Uh, It is. It's a problem. I would say that the social changes – are backed by probably 70% of the people. Most Saudis are under 30, so um, half the population. So those people, by and large, are very happy. And they like these changes. They like magic shows and rock concerts and the fact that they can go sit in a restaurant with someone who's not their wife. Uh, before, before you, you literally had to be able to produce a marriage certificate to sit with a woman in a restaurant. And if you didn't, you could both get arrested. So, but that, that's all, that's all fading. The same with the dress code. I mean, a lot of women still choose to wear uh, the abaya or the black robe, but there's much less rigor of enforcing that uh, now. Um, so, but there are people who don't like this. I would say there's 20% of the people who would either want it to stop or even get rolled back. And then there's another 10% of the population who think it's not going fast enough. These are people who want nightclubs and casinos and, and bars and, uh, think, you know, who really want things to, and, and, and not just things that you might consider somewhat, um, salacious, but they also want a free press, which there definitely is not in Saudi Arabia or an elected parliament, uh, which there is not in Saudi Arabia. So there are probably 10% of the people who think things are not going fast enough and 20% who think they're already going too fast. So that's a little bit about the cultural changes. Now, would you like me to continue or do you, I think I could talk about the economic. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this is, this is fascinating because, you know, I could, I could happily listen to you all day talking about these kinds of things because these dynamics, they're changing the country so quickly. And it's for me, the, that interlaced impact of social and economic issues that is so interesting. So to what extent are the social changes being driven by genuine demand for social changes versus economic drivers you know to, to what extent do does the country need to get women into the workforce for example versus the, the driver is actually that they want to liberalize and they want to you know move the country in a different direction socially or is it is it a case that it's it's both that happen to be coming together at the same time you're right in pointing out that they're both i mean that the largest factor is the fact that young people watch youtube and look at satellite tv they realized that Saudi Arabia was very much out of step with the social mores of the rest of the world. And they were leaving. Uh, bright, educated Saudis were going to Dubai or to New York or somewhere where they felt they could have a more contemporary lifestyle. And so the king uh, didn't like all the young Saudis, not all of them, obviously, but I mean, a substantial number of the most talented ones leaving. 
So that was, I mean, it was both social and economic. He didn't want all these people leaving. And he realized that the people who were still many of the young people wanted these changes. So, um, so I think it was both, but I think the real driver for the social changes was people wanted to have a more modern lifestyle. The real driver for the economic changes was the fracking revolution in the United States. This changed the global energy markets. It shifted the supply curve for oil out so that the price of oil is unlikely to reach $100 a barrel anytime soon. And the Saudi market share in the global energy market was um, threatened, was, was not just threatened, was reduced. So the Saudis had an economic problem that their model was not really sustainable. Uh, they had to had to change some of the things that the way they had been doing. And so they came up with Vision 2030, which had social, but also large, many economic features. It's a very uh, ambitious program. It is. It has. But it's it's complicated. It's hundreds of pages, dozens of APIs. <laughs> um, but really, it boils down to three things economically. We have to balance the budget. We have to diversify the economy away from oil and we have to create jobs in the private sector for Saudis. And all of those things, it it elaborates the plan, talks about how they're going to do that. Um, And so, again, some of these changes have been have been real. They're not it's not a mirage to say that they for the first time put in a VAT tax. It's not a mirage to say that for the first time they actually started making people pay a realistic price or let's say a more realistic price for electricity, for gasoline, all of these things were more or less given away almost free. And that's, that's changing. Um, and that's an effort to balance the budget. So they're now making people pay taxes and uh, they are trying to diversify away from just exporting oil. They have been quite successful in doing that in terms of uh, refining and petrochemicals. Uh, so they're now selling uh refined product or petrochemicals rather than just crude oil, which is adds value. But they're having it's a more difficult uh, to do it in other sectors. And the two they're trying really are mining uh, where they have a good chance because they have good reserves of phosphate and bauxite for aluminum Mm -hmm. and also for um, tourism, where they have some potential, especially for religious tourism, because they have, if you will, a natural monopoly on Mecca. So all of the world's two billion Muslims are supposed to visit Mecca once a year and you know you can build another disneyland in paris and people will say oh i don't have to go to california or i don't even have to go to florida i can go to paris but you can't do that for mecca so um they have they have a captive audience to some extent and they're trying to capitalize on that um the problem being that uh, covid really shot a hole in in that plan so um i think they have they have a plan which was really designed by some of the best consultants in the world and i think they Change uh, the final thing to say about that is they also change the structure of the government, and this is important. Uh, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but the political system in Saudi Arabia was, and I'll talk about that in a minute. The political changes, but basically the government is now much more focused. It's much more under the control of one person. It's not a bunch of independent senior princes all running their own uh, organizations and doing their own thing. There is a centralized plan. There are a centralized budget. There is uh, there are KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, which you have to meet if you want to get more if you want your project approved and if you want more money for your project once it has been approved. So the implementation of Vision 2030 is far more um, rigorous and effective than the previous plans of which there were 
10 five-year plans over the last 50 years. Many of them had similar goals, but none of them had anything like similar mechanisms for implementation. So I think I'll leave it at that for the um, economic changes. And just in, in relation to that, in terms of the political, because, you know, in, in, in the book, you do describe how, in some ways, Saudi Arabia has been and, and still is a traditional monarchy. You know, you've got a, a king and a, a crown prince and courtiers and that way of operating is very different to as a system of government to perhaps many, you know the majority of other countries you know is that still shaping how they make decisions at a government level or is it now becoming more um i think professional is probably the wrong word but i mean are they now are they now building up a class of professional civil servants for example to help run ministries and to help make decisions or and and to help create policies or or is that all still very much done at the at the sort of um, level of the of the king and, and and his advisors or the crown prince. Well, um, the political changes in Saudi Arabia um, are less obvious uh, than the economic and certainly than the social changes, but they are, while perhaps less ob- less obvious, equally as important. Um, the first political change to focus on is, in a sense, what did not happen. The old system has been replaced, but there was not a destabilizing power struggle to do this. Now, what do I mean by all that? For the last 60 years, the system in Saudi Arabia has transferred power from one brother to another. The founder of modern Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, or King Abdulaziz, had 34 sons alive when he died, and they more or less ran the show of passing power between them. That system, it provided legitimacy for the regime because, as I say, it allowed for the quick and smooth succession. And it did so under some pretty difficult situations. They removed one king who was incompetent. They had another king who was assassinated. They had another king who became mentally incapacitated. And in all those cases, their system worked. And that, compared to many other um, Arab countries, that was a rather um, more efficient system. However, the king did not destroy this system. It just sort of ended on its own. There were no more brothers. And so we have to move to the next generation, to the third generation, to the grandsons of Ibn Saud. And that transition was never going to be easy. And people like myself who watch Saudi Arabia always saw that as a very problematic, difficult, potentially destabilizing game of thrones amongst the 500 grandsons of Ibn Saud, all who thought they should be the next king. So King Salman very um, deliberately picked who's going to be the next king and engineered his rise to power and his consolidation of power. And whether you think he picked the right person or not, um, that is Mohammed bin Salman. He didn't pick his eldest son. He didn't pick one of the nephews from his own branch of the family. He very specifically chose one of his, actually one of his younger sons, and now he's he's the crown prince. Uh, so that manipulation, if you will, engineering of the succession is perhaps the most important political change. And now Mohammed bin Salman is busy filling the government with, um, he's one of the younger third, he's actually a very young um, grandson. Uh, many grandsons of King Abdulaziz are much older than him. So he's now turning to people who are actually great grandsons or even in some cases, great, great grandsons of uh, Ibn Saud. And he's creating a whole new generation of uh, of leaders 
who are, he's now putting into responsible positions and governorships and deputy governorships and ministries. So that's that's an important change. And a slightly tangential question, if I may, here, um, but one that I think is really relevant when we're talking about a country like Saudi Arabia. To what extent to understand what's going on? To what extent is it necessary to understand the family structure, the royal family and the other the other families who are um, tied to the royal family in one way or another? And how difficult is that? And how difficult is it keeping track of so many sons and nephews and cousins? And, you know, as the family sprawl becomes more and more sprawling. Is, is is that something that you know you have to spend a lot of time keeping on top of? Yes, the answer is <laughs> okay. yes. Um, right, <laughs> but it's um it's a bit less so now. Um, mm. I was going to say that um you asked you know who makes decisions, and the answer is nobody whose name is not El Saud makes major decisions. Right. Uh, now there are plenty of smaller decisions that are made by bureaucrats, and there is an increasingly efficient bureaucracy. Although I would still say that the Human resources, human capital is one of the country's shortcomings. One of the problems that they'll face with Vision 2030 and its implementation is the um, shortage of, uh, you know, skilled bureaucrats, if you will. Um, there are more than there used to be, but there still could use a few more. Um, when the government was run by all these brothers, certain half a dozen of them, had major ministries which they ran for 20 or 30 years and effectively had their own little ecosystems, political and economic ecosystems. And to some extent, you had to understand each of those. If you wanted to deal with the Ministry of Defense, you had to understand Prince Sultan and his group. If you were going to deal with the Ministry of Interior, you needed to know about Prince Nayef and his group. If you were going to deal with the Foreign Ministry, you needed to understand Saad al-Faisal and his group. At that point, were you also, let's say you were trying to deal with those different ministries, were there kind of rivalries and competitions between those different those different yeah, groups yes, to the extent that if you, if you were dealing with one, then you'd perhaps find it difficult to deal with one of the other ministries? No, that wouldn't because they didn't overlap. I mean, they're okay. as far as a foreigner was concerned or a government, a foreign government, they, their jurisdictions didn't really overlap. I mean, they, mm-hmm. stayed, they, they were quite good about that. They stayed in their lane. If uh, it was something for the Minister of Interior, the Minister of Defense or the Minister of National Guard wouldn't uh, they wouldn't bother you for going to the other one. I think they they certainly competed sure. between each other and amongst each other for resources. That's for sure. Uh, but you yourself didn't as a foreigner, didn't have to worry that you talked to one and then you couldn't talk to another. Uh, but the point is, that's all been unraveled now. OK, that is gone. That system, mm. that system breed, it, it bred consensus. It bred very slow change. Uh, now we have a system which is much less consensual, but is also able to make rapid decisions. So it's a step forward uh, in one way and perhaps a step back in another. But its power is much more concentrated now uh, under the, um, the, the the reign of King Salman and, 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 and his son. Um, but it is also it, part of this is it's also become more authoritarian. I think that you need people need to realize that this place there were some small steps under King Abdullah towards, if you will, democratization. He had municipal council, town councils had elections. He increased the powers of the proto-parliament, which is called the Majl Salshura or consultative uh, council. Uh, he created something called the Allegiance Council, which was kind of like a house of lords that was supposed to Basically, these were rep- these were the sons, living sons of Ibn Saud, or if they were the son had died, his one of his sons or grandsons. And this was a collection of senior princes who were supposed to vote to pick the next king. Um, all of these things 
really have been sidelined and by and large ignored by uh, King Salman. So he's very much concentrating power and he's very much not interested in dissent. Uh, there's been a crackdown on dissent. We all hear about that. It's true. Um, they have thrown. I told you there are 20 percent of the people who are protesting on the that things have gone too far. And there's 10 percent who think that they haven't gone far enough. Uh, if you're too vocal with your protests, you will go to jail. People are much more careful about what they say uh, than I'd ever seen before. Uh, and, I w- and I would say fear is, is, is the right word to use. So, yes, um, is, is it becoming a police state? It's certainly more like one than it used to be. I don't think it's it's certainly not. I've lived in Syria. Uh, it's certainly not um, Syria under Hafez Assad. Uh, it's a long ways from that. But it certainly is, is a less um, liberal, if you will, place with expressing your views than it was under King Abdullah. Now, whether that's necessary to get these changes through or not, uh, you know, I leave that to you people to decide. Some people would say, look, this guy's trying to ram through a lot of changes and he can't tolerate dissent while he's doing it. Uh, other people say, you know, that's just the wrong answer that, you know, he should let people voice their dissent. Um, I think time will tell. Is there a danger there that in trying to do that for the short term, for those short term changes that he wants to make, that he's creating a, a culture and an like you said, a more authoritarian country that is going to be difficult to then bring back. I think that's a very real, um, it's a risk. I mean, the country will evolve. The country is not, five years from now, the country is not going to be what it is today. It will either evolve towards a more participatory, accountable monarchy. I don't think it's, we're not going to get rid of the monarchy. We should probably hope Mm. that we don't get rid of the monarchy because the monarchy Mm. is a stabilizing force in Saudi Arabia. And the alternative to the monarchy is not a secular, democratic, liberal regime. The alternative yeah. to the monarchy is some sort of an Islamist government like the one in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood government there, or and that's if they were elected, or if they came to power through violence, through a revolution, it's somebody like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And the reason for the, that is not that those two forces would be the most popular, but the Muslim Brotherhood types are the most organized and the ISIS types are the most ruthless and violent. So those are the people who would win if the Saudi monarchy were replaced. So we should hope that the monarchy doesn't get replaced anytime soon, but we should hope that it evolves into a more accountable and participatory and ultimately a constitutional monarchy. I think it's fair to say that they, they still have the, the respect of the majority of the population, certainly, and, and there's no danger really for, of them suffering a revolution or anything. That's correct. Not yeah. at the moment. I think that's that is um, correct. They, they are. That's one of the factors that I think gives them the hope, a possibility of evolving uh, that the um, they are they are legitimate. They're not clinging to power by their fingers. They're not they're not a you know, they're, they're not a terrorist state like Saddam Hussein's terrorizing his own people uh, in order to stay in power. No, by and large, the people like them um, and like the way that they've governed and don't want to, and that they've had, they've had an opportunity. I mean, they had the Al Qaeda insurrection between 2003 and 2007, where mm-hmm. the vast majority of people made it clear they wanted nothing to do with Al Qaeda. And they had the Arab spring where the Islamist potential was there. If they had wanted to jump on that bandwagon in both cases, the majority of the people um, said, no, we're happy with what we have. We may not be happy with what we have, but we see that the alternative is, is, is not mm-hmm. better. We don't have to be to just turn on our TV and we think, gee, we could be like Lebanon or we could be like uh, Libya or we could be like, uh, you know, Syria. So um, mm-hmm. they understand that the options um, 
that the, 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 probably they have the best option uh, at the moment. Basically, five years from now, it's not going to be the same as it is today. It's either going to be more authoritarian or it's going to be more accountable. And we in the West have an ability to influence that outcome. And we should engage. And I, if I'm on my uh, box in Speaker's Corner uh, in London, that's that's what I would say is that um, the calls for ostracizing Saudi Arabia are misguided. Uh, the ostracizing, sanctioning, whatever you want to some people say, make them a pariah state. Um, all that's going to do is uh, make them more likely to, to seek authoritarian allies. And uh, the Chinese and the Russians will be more than happy to uh, step in and they don't share our values or our interests. And so really engaging with the Saudis, um, encouraging positive change, encouraging positive reform and discouraging um, negative behavior, making it clear that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was a crime, making it clear that that shouldn't happen again, that it shouldn't go unpunished. We need to do that. And I think we can. And it's interesting you mentioned, obviously, that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which um, is obviously a horrific incident, but, um, you know, without rehashing all, the, all of the, the, the gory details. But um, it's an interesting case to look at in the sense that did they, in your view, respond with the right kind of changes post that incident in terms of trying to restructure a little bit of the um the, the kind of intelligence community, security community within within Saudi Arabia to try and give themselves uh, better kind of government governance and perhaps oversight of those types of activities. They or is, claim it, is, is it difficult? To, is it difficult to tell? I mean, it's it's. You know. I think the real comment that I would make uh, is that the Saudis have a problem with transparency. They are not uh, transparent in a lot of their dealings. And this leads people to speculate about the worst. It leads people to doubt their claims when they say they've made a change. And this is a prime example of that. So the answer is yes. They say that they did an investigation, that they reformed the system. And I would imagine that they probably did. And I would imagine that the global backlash was um, enough of a shock that they will change their Policies. I'm not sure they intended to kill Jamal Khashoggi in the first place. They may have been trying just to kidnap him. Um, but whatever they were trying to do, I think they will reconsider uh, what they how they do go about that sort of thing, how they treat dissidents. in the. I think, yes, they will change. They have changed. Uh, but the exact details of what they've done is it remains opaque. So all you can do is assume that they aren't stupid and that they learned that this was a bad idea and they shouldn't do it again. But you can't say that for sure. And. You know, in terms of, and they haven't yeah. done it again. So I mean, we can hope, well, but uh, well, yeah. Hopefully, we've made it very clear to them that if they did it again, you know, there would would really would have to be some serious consequences then. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, as you said, I think hopefully international pressure played a part there, and and that the countries, you know, the, the government listened and 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 responded to. I hope, well, we all hope that that kind of incident wouldn't happen again, um, but. With the the kind of reforms we have seen, and as you mentioned, with the crown prince coming to power and and being one of those younger members of the royal family, and and perhaps in effect a, a large swathe of a generation having been bypassed um, in terms of how they decided to go through the succession process, 
have any of these changes, political changes, been driven by the crown prince's need to stamp his authority or to, to get people on side or to, you know, to ensure that he's got the backing and that he's not going to be bogged down with a lot of um, not not even dissent, but just different views of how things should be done? Well, I think you are alluding to an important point. In many respects, Mohammed bin Salman is doing what Charles de Gaulle suggested in the sense that he is embracing the inevitable. Charles de Gaulle said that, always embrace the inevitable. I think he's right. I mean, it was inevitable that if half the people in your country are under 30, they're not going to share their grandparents' views about what the religious police should be doing. Likewise, uh, it was inevitable that the welfare state that the grandparents and parents enjoyed where the government paid for everything. I mean, they actually paid you to go to school. So that was going to have to come to an end. So to some extent, Mohammed bin Salman is embracing the inevitable and, and bringing about changes which which had to become had to happen. And his father, I think it's important to give his father credit for this. His father, um, his father's not some guy who's asleep and doesn't have any idea what's going on. His father is, you know, created Mohammed bin Salman to be an agent for many of the things that he wants. Now, Mohammed bin Salman runs things on a day to day basis, but certainly in the early stages, his father was um you know, very much involved in, in the direction of change that he, and I give you a good, good example of that is anti-corruption. Uh, we can talk about that. It's a very interesting subject, anti-corruption. But, um, to answer your question, I think that, um, Mohammed bin Salman did need to establish himself and he did nail his flag, if you will, to Vision 2030. So part of the reason Vision 2030 is progressing as vigorously as it is, is that his political future is nailed to the success of Vision 2030. And if Vision 2030 were to be a total, complete failure, um, that would, I don't know if it would completely sink, but it would certainly damage his political uh, career and and his opportunities and perhaps even his ability to become crown prince. In some ways, that's why the king keeps him there, because, you know, you can get rid of a crown prince. So if things really, if Vision 2030 really collapses, uh or the war in Yemen goes terribly wrong, the king can say, well, that was my young son. And, you know, he was trying to learn, but he didn't do a very good job. So I'll pick somebody else now. So um, so he can do that and he could do that. Uh, but I don't think he'll do that at the moment, because I think that by and large, the social changes and to the extent that they're able, that anybody could reasonably make these economic changes under the current economic COVID situation. I think he's doing a reasonable job there. Um, and, and 2030 is not far away. And we mentioned earlier, obviously, it's a, it's a really ambitious plan in terms of this, you know, uh, just coming back to, you know, as we talked earlier about the, the, the title of your book, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. I, you know, what are the kind of things that for researchers and analysts looking at Saudi Arabia, they could be looking at? What are the, what are the indicators or the the key questions that they should be looking to try and th- keep in mind as we observe the progress that Saudi Arabia makes to to figure out how well that vision is developing over the next 10 years? Well, um, you know, you mentioned the book. So the book, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the book because if you, if you want to know what it is that I think you should be looking at to understand Saudi Arabia, it's outlined in the model that is presented in the book. And the 
and I'll be I'll be brief. The basically the idea is that the the stability and legitimacy of Saudi Arabia rests on four legs. The first is the role of the Saud El Saud family in creating and unifying the country essentially by unifying the Arabian Peninsula. The second is their ability to handle succession smoothly. The third, which they have done, as we said earlier, quite often, repeatedly, unlike many of the other Arab countries. Uh, the third is their ability to balance stakeholders. They have created a coalition of stakeholder groups. Each of those groups has an elite which represents that group's interests to the monarchy. And there is a symbiotic relationship between those stakeholder elites and the monarchy in that each tend to support each other. The stakeholder elites get things from the monarchy that help their followers and that uh, the monarchy thereby helps them maintain their leadership roles in those stakeholder groups. Uh, Who are those stakeholder groups? There are five of them, really. There's the tribal groups, the religious establishment, the merchants and business community, the technocratic middle class technocrats. Uh, bureaucrats, uh, and then the royal family itself, which is a very large, there are tens of thousands of members of the royal family at large. There's a, I distinguish between the ruling family, which is a very small group, and the royal family, which is thousands of people. Uh, so if you want to look at the stability of Saudi Arabia, uh, I, I think you need to look at how the changes are affecting the interests of each of those stakeholder groups and quite At the moment, most of those groups have some reason to be angry or annoyed. Uh, The leadership of those groups has some reason to feel that their interests have been uh, either ignored or even um, repressed. I just give you an example. The businessmen, they're not happy about the fact that uh, their Saudiization is now attempting to make them get rid of cheap foreign workers and employ more expensive, uh, less docile Saudi workers. Uh, that's a good idea for the Saudi economy, but it's uh, not doesn't make the business community happy, or at least many of them. The technocrats are not happy because they're having to pay for gasoline and their VAT has gone up. Many of the royal, many of the princes are unhappy because they're watching their own perks be eliminated. They used to get free electricity. They don't get that anymore. They used to get free airplane tickets. They don't get that anymore. Uh, there are a lot of things that uh, that, you know, being a prince isn't quite what it used to be. Uh, so, uh, there, I think from stability point of view, I would, I would look at each of those things. And then the final factor for the average Saudi that uh, has added to stability is that the Saudis have provided a reasonably competent, um, by certainly by Arab world standards, um, competent government. And again, what do I mean by competent government? I think it has really got three parts. There's security, there's economic development, and there is social change at a pace that the majority of the people find to be acceptable. And again, in each of those areas, there are challenges. Security domestically is, is, is fine, but um, it was not during the Al-Qaeda insurrection, but it's okay now. But what's not okay now is external security in the sense that uh, there is a war going on in Yemen. That's the first time in many years that the Saudis, in fact, the first time ever, really, that the modern Saudi state has been involved in a prolonged war. Uh, They avoided, one of their great successes was that they avoided all the Arab-Israeli wars. They avoided the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, they they sent money, but they they didn't get uh, involved in any physical sense. 
So now they're involved in a war and uh, half of Aramco's uh, production capacity at Abcake was taken out by a drone strike. So there have been attacks on Riyadh by missiles. There have been numerous attacks on the cities of uh, Jizan and Abha and Najran. Uh, so that's that's a that's a problem. That's a destabilizing uh, factor. And just just to touch on on that situation yeah. for a moment, because I know that's going to be a, a a lot of interest to people listening to the podcast. To what you know, to what extent is the success of the government overall, at least in terms of trying to achieve the changes they want to see in the future, um, going to be tied to the, the potential for their their credibility to be affected by the outcome of what happens in Yemen? You know, if they it, whether they succeed, whether they fail, is that going to have yeah, a big yeah, impact? At the moment, um, the war in the war in Yemen is 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 unpopular, but it is not really destabilizing the regime at the moment. The people, by and large, understand why they went to Yemen. They went to Yemen because they did not want Iran to get a toehold on the Arabian Peninsula. They felt that if Iran be, took over Yemen, or that the Houthis, who are they don't they don't they don't exactly work for the Iranians, but they're allied to the Iranians. Um, or they receive support, let's put it that way, from the Iranians, and the Iranians have influence on them. They did not want that to um, to take place in uh, in Yemen, and most Saudis um, support that. They wish the war would end. Uh, they would like to see a negotiated settlement, but they understand that Saudi Arabia has legitimate security concerns in Yemen, and they. I have not detected I've detected dissatisfaction with the war, but I haven't detected there's no, you know, pull out tomorrow and let the Iranians take over. Um, That sentiment has not has not happened. What's more destabilizing at the moment is discontent with the economic changes in the sense that I, I mentioned to you that security was one feature. Economic development, which is, has been really quite successful in Saudi Arabia, if you look at it over the last 40 years, the average Saudi is living a lot better life than he than he did 40 years ago in terms of education health infrastructure uh, housing you name it they've come a long ways but now a lot of that is being threatened by these economic changes uh, by low oil prices and uh, increased taxes and an erosion of the welfare state so that really is more of a concern to the average saudi than the war in yemen and as i said earlier the the the, the final feature of what most people thought of as good government was that they provided social change at a pace that most people found acceptable. And I think that's still the case. But as the social change has accelerated, there have become more people who are um, angry at the pace of change and who think that, you know, we should put the religious police back on the street. We should shut down the um, the movie theaters. And these people, just to finish on that. These people are not all just motivated by some ideological reason. In many cases, these people have their social status and even their jobs are tied up in all this. So they are an interest group, an economic interest group, as well as an ideological interest group. And I'll just give you an example. I mean, if you happen to be a teacher in elementary school of religious studies and they come and say, well, you know what? We used to have a third of the day religious studies, but now it's going to only be 10 percent. And, oh, you're not really a very good math teacher, so I don't know what you're going to do now. You're probably going to be out of a job, or at least we'll just keep you around until you retire, but you won't do much. So those people, and we're not going to hire any more religious uh, studies teachers. So all the people in school who are studying to be religious studies teachers, they're mad. So when you start making these kind of changes, uh, there are constituencies 
that are angry, that um, that are not not happy with that at all. If you're a religious policeman and they just told you you're, you can't arrest people anymore, uh, you're obviously not too happy about that. So, um, yes, there are now more people who are unhappy. That I would say those are the two real reasons, the, the backlash on the social changes and the unease about the erosion of the welfare state. Both are more important than concern about the war in Yemen. But how about um, away from the domestic arena, looking at foreign relations, you know, does the conflict in Yemen, is it something useful for people to keep monitoring to, to understand how Saudi Arabia is perhaps being affected by its relations with other countries? I mean, we've seen campaigns in the in the UK and elsewhere to pause or to prevent any future arms sales to Saudi Arabia because of the its involvement in the conflict in Yemen. Is that something that also has an impact on the actions of the government there or, you know, that, that influences their planning or their, their strategy for the future? Well, if it doesn't, it should. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's again, it's an issue of transparency. You know, it's hard to know. Clearly, civilians are being killed in Saudi airstrikes. Considering, you know, what the British and Americans did to Hamburg or Dresden, you know, it's a little bit hard for me to see how you can sit and say that, uh, you know, no civilians can be killed in a war when you're bombing a country. The question is, how irresponsible are they being? And that I find hard to answer. I mean, I, I listen to, you know, I hear the, I hear the Saudis telling me that they have um, and the American government as well telling me that they have set up these tribunals or these these committees that are trying to monitor it, that they try to give a good targeted information to their um, to their pilots, that they investigate mistakes. And on the other hand, you hear that, you know, they bombed a wedding or a school or a school bus. So it's hard for me to know. I mean, it's hard for me to judge really um, how egregious these mistakes are. I, I find it hard to believe that they're actively trying to go, you know, bomb schools and weddings. I think but it's I'll, one of those things that no matter how good no matter how good targeted munitions become, they're always going to there are always going to be mistakes in war. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's yeah. just a fact. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I was here during the um, it's a sad fact. I mean, I was here. It was in Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Storm. And um, the biggest this is a sad thing. But the biggest um, fatalities of the British um, during that were, were um, through accidental friend, friendly fire. There were some airstrikes mm-hmm. that um, yeah. people just made a mistake and uh, shot the wrong people. And uh, so, yeah, that it happens. But the, so uh, up to a point, you can say it's understandable whether they've crossed that line or other people who just want to, you know, find something to complain about um, are being excessive. It's hard for me to say. But I but to answer your question specifically, the Saudis need to be more transparent. I shouldn't have to be sitting here saying, I don't know. I should have a very clear answer. They should have some neutral group that goes in and comes up with some kind of a um, a bona fide report or study that we could actually credibly believe. And yeah. I haven't seen that. No, you're right. I think that, that that would make sense. And I think it would add to their, their credibility in terms of foreign relations, for sure. You mentioned the importance of the anti-corruption drives as well. That's something that I think you picked out in the book as well as being something that's important for people to keep an eye on in terms of, I guess, the success of anti-corruption measures, but also how transparent again and this comes back to your point about transparency how transparent they're being in how anti-corruption measures are being applied and how fairly i suppose they're being applied is that going to be something that looking from outside the country monitoring what's going on it will be 
easy or difficult to to sort of to look at and uh in particular you know how contracts are awarded these kinds of issues or, or is that something that you really are going to rely on people who are in the country to understand how those processes are working and playing out well look um i think there's a very basic question uh to answer and that is and i don't know if this will displease some of the listeners but if you want to know you have to go <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you cannot I, we used to have this problem um, very significantly, I would say, in uh, when I was in the embassy in Riyadh. We would almost say, look, there are two Middle Easts. There are two Saudi Arabias. There's the one that actually exists, which we're here in it. And then there's the one that exists in the minds of the people in Washington. Uh, <laughs> and I yeah. mean, I, I'll give you a good example. These people mm. really believed that when they got to Baghdad, everyone would, you know, it was going to be liberation of Paris. Can they really believe <laughs> They really believed that. And they thought that, you know, uh, that uh, six months later, there would be, you know, the Canadian Parliament would be established running uh, Iraq. There were other people who told them that was a wild pipe dream. So I think that the ability to delude yourself if you're if you don't actually go there is very significant. The flip side is that if you are there, it's a there is a, there is an ability to become too enmeshed in the local views and um, develop what they call clientitis or go, go native, uh, That that's something to, you have to guard against as well. But I do think that if you really want to understand a place, you can't really do – you can do a lot. Don't get me wrong. You can do a lot. But you can't get the last 20% unless you actually, I think, go there. Now, uh, corruption. Yes, I if I were outside Saudi Arabia trying to watch what was going on, I think that um, I would pay very close attention to corruption because it indicates – it's a key indicator – of how serious the king is about his reforms. I think he's very serious. I think he's, the king has been, this king has been serious about corruption for a long time. When he was governor of Riyadh, he ran a cleaner city than most other parts of the Saudi government. Uh, he used to go around to the Riyadh Development Authority and he would tell people, he said, if I catch anybody here stealing money, you're going to jail for the rest of your life. Uh, and he meant it. So he has been uh, unhappy with corruption, which he sees as a detriment, a roadblock to development, which it clearly is. Uh, so he's been trying to get rid of that for a long time. Uh, he couldn't do a lot on a national level when he was governor, but now he has tried to do what he did in Riyadh to many, to the whole country. And he's created this, he had something called the Riyadh Development Authority, which uh, was only existed in Riyadh, but now he's built about, I think, seven or eight of them around in other major cities which are sort of little organizations which are supposed to supervise the, the development of the city and keep it clean. So let me just be quick here about the anti-corruption campaign. I think that there are people who have unfairly cheapened what the Saudis have done on corruption. I have heard people say, well, he only went after the little people. He only has going after small fries and he's not serious. Uh, I don't, that's not true. He's, he's gone after small fries, but then he went after the big fish too. He went after senior princes and he went after some of the top businessmen in the kingdom. And then people said, oh, he's just doing that because it's a power grab. No, I think in both cases, he did both. He went after little people and he went after big people and he went after people who, he wanted to send a message that corruption would not be tolerated. And, um, look, it's not gone away, but it is much less than it was. At a little, you you mentioned contracts. Um, mm. Lots of contracts are now bid online in open, and they are more transparent. And you can see who's bidding and how much they're being, what their price is. 
And that has really eliminated the ability of a lot of middlemen to manipulate that to a very considerable extent. There are now ways that you can anonymously report malfeasance in the government, and that will be investigated. And I think perhaps most importantly, uh, there's been a change in what is considered acceptable behavior. And this is very real in the sense that a lot of those people who went to the Ritz were leading citizens who got invited to all the best parties and sat on all the best committees and got, you know, got on government panels and uh, went to the best parties. As I said, uh, that's not so much the case anymore. Now, if you are seen as somebody who is a crook uh, and everybody knows it, you might not get invited to all the parties. So there's a certain social stigma to corruption now, which did not exist before. And I think that the king and his son have been have have been um, effective in making making that clear. Uh, and I would also finally say that it's extremely popular. Uh, one of the reasons that the government is popular in Saudi Arabia, uh, and yeah, and to be honest, yeah, why despite the the somewhat the crackdown on dissent, why by and large the people are still supportive, is that they see um, this attempt to reduce corruption. Um, now, there, there are two questions that come to mind people always ask. Um, one is, what about Mohammed bin Salman? Didn't he buy a very expensive painting? Didn't he buy a big chateau in France? Didn't he buy a big yacht? How can he um, say he's against corruption when he's doing all these things? Um, I will tell you what one Saudi said to me, which I thought was kind of amusing. He said, look, he's the king. He's a crown prince. That's what kings and crown princes are supposed to do. Um, doesn't the Queen of Liz- doesn't Queen Elizabeth have a palace? Doesn't she have a yacht? Doesn't she have an art gallery? And the answer is yes. I think she got rid of her yacht, but the truth is she has more than one palace, and she certainly got a big art gallery. He's got a very by comparison. So, uh, so <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's an interesting comparison. So he said, you know, that's what kings do, and there's and we're proud of him because he behaves like a king, and he has, and now he'll have an art collection too. Uh, and I felt like saying, do you think that, you know, in 50 years, people are going to his his palace is going to be part of the National Trust and people are going to be paying five pounds to go look at it. But uh, <laughs> I, I didn't didn't ask him that. But uh, right, right. any event. Um, so but the but the real question is, is not so much as whether Mohammed bin Salman is um, a is exceeding his remit and buying all these things. But is he surrounding himself with a new band of pirates? Um, in other words, is one crew of crooks being replaced by another? Um, I think the jury's still out on that. Uh, it's, I mean, if there is a new crew of pirates, it's a much smaller crew than the old one. But um, we have to wait and see just how deep this this clearly they have reduced corruption. How far it continues to get reduced, we'll have to wait and see. Mm, so that's one of those things that you'd, you'd be keen to observe and watch out for and and see how that develops i guess it is i would mm. i'd watch that i'd watch housing i think that's mm. a very interesting one for you to watch too and it relates to corruption um essentially um part of the anti-corruption campaign was land reform uh people don't focus on that it see that's the kind of thing to give you an example that you'd have to go there because i have not read anything in the western press about this um and land reform is always a vital issue to look at anywhere around the world, you know, for any country that's developing is to see. I mean, I assume that you're talking about rights to ownership and and who can who can own land. Now, I'm talking about who owns a house. 
Who owns a house? Yeah, uh, property, land, exactly. Yeah. Because in Saudi Arabia, um, getting a house was very difficult. It was right. unaffordable to most people. When you talk, when people talk about land reform in the Middle East, they're usually thinking about Egypt, where peasants are getting a few acres of some big estate. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about urban real estate where people are trying to build a house. In mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, the value of your property is about 70% the land and 30% the house. That's inverted to what it probably is in Britain. It's inverted to what it is in the United States, where the biggest value, maybe not in central London, but in most places, <laughs> the biggest value is, is the house itself, not the piece of land. Now, in Saudi Arabia, it was the piece of land because land was controlled by a very few people and it was very, they didn't sell it very often. They just left it to sit, uh, hoping that in, and expecting that the value would appreciate and they paid no taxes on this land. So this meant there was nowhere to build a house except far out in the, in the rural areas. Um, King Abdullah recognized this and he tried to make a tax on unused land. Uh, and people found, and he did make a tax on unused land so that people would be forced to either develop it or sell it. But people found a way around that. They started building little shacks and saying, oh, see, I built a house or on this land or something. So they found ways around it. And uh, it didn't really, he didn't, and he, then he built a, he made a housing ministry, which was supposed to build houses for people, but it couldn't find any land to build houses for people. So King Salman, when he came to power, he said enough of this nonsense. And most of what he confiscated in the Ritz was raw land. Mm-hmm. The $100 billion that they took is some of it is building, some of it's cash, some of it is um, stocks and bonds, but most of it was undeveloped land in downtown Jeddah and Riyadh. And they're now distributing that with the help of a new mortgage law to um, people who want houses. So um, that was a that's a good example where the anti-corruption uh, campaign is extremely popular because it's helping people get houses. And so I so I would I would keep an eye on on the anti-corruption campaign. This has been a, an absolutely fascinating discussion, David. I feel like I could I could talk to you all day and pick your brains about you know Saudi Arabia and what's going on. And you know I feel like we've barely scratched the surface in some ways and, and there's there's so much more that we could discuss, especially around things like um, foreign relations and geopolitics and the role they play for Saudi Arabia going forward. And also looking again, domestically, some of the, the, the personalities perhaps of those um, the, of the rulers and people around them and how much that might be driving the, the dynamics of development. But, you know, I feel like we're, we're probably running out of uh, time for this podcast episode. So I wanted to just maybe, ask you if there's any other sort of big things that you think that actually people ought to focus on um, if they're uh, researching or analyzing Saudi Arabia, what are the, anything that we haven't maybe covered or anything you wanted to uh, emphasize really? Really the last thing I would say is that if you're, if, if the people who are listening to this are interested in analyzing Saudi Arabia, then they really should go buy the book. Which is, <laughs> it's called vision and Raj. And the truth is I wrote the book. That's really, I mean, that is who I wrote the book for. Uh, I wrote the book for the next American ambassador in Saudi Arabia so that he could understand how the place worked and didn't have to spend 20 years trying to figure it out. And that is really what the book is. It is a model of how the place works. And it, and it, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, at the end of the last chapters, it does set out a list of 
key indicators and tripwires, which will help you to ind indicate where the kingdom is going in terms of politics, in terms of economics, and in terms of social change. So really, if, I mean, I'm not just saying that because I wrote it, but that is what I did write the book for was precisely for people who are trying to analyze Saudi Arabia so that they have a model and a framework to hang the information that they obtain from the newspaper or wherever that they, you, the, the little bits of information, factoids aren't very helpful unless you have a framework and you can figure out how that fits into the model of how the place actually functions. That book does, it's the only book I know that actually gives you a model like that. There are a lot of other books, which are history books uh, or recounting particular stories about particular elements. And there are good biographies, good two new biographies of Mohammed bin Salman. But none of the, those books are not presenting you with a model that can um, help you analyze. So if that's what you're trying to do, then I think the best advice I can give you really is go get the book. <laughs> that is it's it's great advice i've got to say uh, having flicked through it that was one of the things that struck me about it that as i said you, you know the questions at the end of the chapters really really are helpful and i think that one of the things i i, I always emphasize to the people who we deliver training to researchers and analysts and open source intelligence practitioners and you know all those people who are trying to get on top of information understand what's going on and, and make sense of it i think everyone gets really caught up in just trying to get everything all of their information online you know we're, we're such a uh, we've become so accustomed to just getting all our information from Google um, or from Google searching. And people now, I think, sometimes forget that actually there's a wealth of information available in books. And one of the things I always recommend, and I, I talk to people of examples where I've done this, especially something like this, where yeah, you've written a really contemporary book, which really addresses current changes that are going on. And those are changes which we need to understand, not just now, but we will get, we're, we're still going to be assessing the progress against the kind of questions you've raised in the book in 10 years time as we look at how vision 2030 has panned out and how the new um uh how the new rulers have have uh, taken saudi arabia forward and so that's i think the type of book that as you said it's not it's not a pure history book although you know you've, you've touched on a lot of the key events in history which i think are vital for understanding saudi arabia today and uh in many ways i'd say uh, you know if you're there talking to people those are the things that are probably more in the forefront of their mind than than maybe we understand when when we're outside the country. Um, and I think that it does a great job of that. So thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been it's been I, great. Let me just add one thing. You know, I had sure. I, I just thought of this. You know, mm. the book is a, you know everybody who's listening to this is not going to go analyze Saudi Arabia. No, uh, true. They want to go analyze some other country. Mm. So I think. If you look at that book and you really only have to read the introduction, which will explain to you the model, you could apply that model. It won't be an exact fit, but that model of how the place works. What is the historic legitimacy of the government? What is their ability to handle succession? Do they have a coalition of stakeholders and how do they how well do they provide the competent government in terms of economics, social change and security? Um, you can look at you can use that model for a lot of other countries, and I would encourage people to try. Yeah, that's a great point, and um, I think all those kinds of frameworks to help understand places and, and issues are, are absolutely essential because otherwise it's really difficult to, to grasp the key points and the, the key things to look at. It's been it's been great. Thank you so much, and um, okay. yeah, I, I hope it's uh, it's something that's going to be beneficial to our audience. So thanks to everyone also who's listened. Um, and yeah, do uh, let us know, get provide us some feedback, let us know what you think, and um, any questions you have, it would be great to, to hear from people who are listening too. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, bye bye now.